0: This is the uh, second class in the series of lessons. Uh, and what we're doing in this class is we're, we're kind of teaching our way through uh, the first letter of Paul to the uh, Corinthians. I told you last week we're not going to be doing you know, line by line as we normally do uh, for this particular, um, for this particular uh, letter, but rather uh, I've chosen topics and subjects throughout the book. And we'll be addressing these as we go uh, through our class. And I've asked you um, uh, to uh, read ahead. Uh, uh, Read the epistle. Uh, If you've read it once, read it again. It'd be good. If you have the whole epistle in mind as we talk about the individual things, that'll be very very helpful. Uh, In my last uh, lesson, um, we talked about the foolishness of God. And I talked to you about how Paul responded to those who were uh, causing division uh, in in that particular church. That was a a problem at that time. And uh, it seems that there were some who were cultivating a following in the church by uh, debating other teachers on various points of doctrine. A little bit like uh, talk radio. You know. There's talk radio and Fox News and CNBC. You know, People take positions and they argue those positions and sometimes uh, the more outlandish the argument, uh, the, the more uh, followers that they, that they have. Well, this phenomenon uh, was alive and well even back in the first century. Uh, they didn't have the communication um, uh, technology that we do, but nevertheless there were men, uh, there were teachers who would stake out a political position or a philosophical position or a theological position. They would argue that and uh, you know, develop a following. And that was all well and good in society, but that, that idea, that, that, that strategy for debate found its way into uh, the Lord's body, into the church, and Paul had to uh, deal with that. Um, uh, we learned last week that uh, apparently these individuals were measuring their success by the size of their audience, also by the style and the eloquence of their preaching, as well as aligning themselves with one or another of the apostles or some of the great teachers, even Jesus himself. They'd say, what I'm teaching, this is what Paul teaches, or what I'm teaching, this is what Peter teaches. And someone else would say, well, you know, would trump all of them and say, what I'm teaching, this is what Jesus is teaching. So this, of course, was causing the church to break into, would break into camps or groups and the focus to shift away from God and onto these teachers, which led to some pride and division. So we talked about that last week. Just give you a little review there. Now in chapters 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul compares himself and his teaching to these men, to these teachers, these, quote, leaders, And uh, he reveals the true source of power in the growth of the church. And uh, he teaches them that the true source of power in the growth of the church is the cross of Jesus Christ. Not the eloquence of the teachers, not the stylish arguments or the education, but actually the cross of Jesus Christ. That was the dynamic power, he said, he explains, that really causes the growth uh, in the church. So we're going to talk about that, the power of the cross. If you want to put a title to this particular lesson would be the power of the cross. Chapter 2 in Corinthians. We begin reading verse 1. He says, and you can follow along with me. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So I've explained to you what was going on before because Uh, Paul segues into his argument here, making a reference back back to those people. He still refers to them as brethren, notice. Even though their activities are sinful and immature, discouraging, he continues to extend the hand of fellowship, which is what makes for unity and peace. So in comparing his style with their style in preaching and teaching, he acknowledges that you know, he's not a trained speaker. He's not a trained uh, orator or philosopher as, as they were. You know, he, gives up, he gives up that point right away. I, I'm not a great speaker, he says. Now this is not false modesty or irony. You know how some people do that? Some, they do a little false modesty and then they slam you with their, you know, ah I'm not good at golf. I hardly ever play. Sure, we'll play. You know, and then all of a sudden you know, they birdie the first hole. You know. This is not false modesty here. He's not saying this tongue in cheek to be sarcastic. Paul acknowledged that others did not find his public speaking ability to be very impressive. If he were alive today he might not be able to get a job as a pulpit minister. He may not have been dynamic enough. And he talks about this in Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10. And so by self-admittance In the present competition between the various teachers based on style and appeal, he gives it up right away. He says, I I can't compete. I I wouldn't do very well. If that's the way that we're measuring ability, power, dynamism, spirituality, I I can't compete. So he goes on in verse 2 and he says the following, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. Now in this verse, he also acknowledges that his ability or lack of it is not the point. That's not what's important, he says. Now his original intent was to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure and simple. You know, it's interesting to note that, that Paul Says that eloquence, dynamism, so public speaking ability is not the point, point. and yet you know, I mean, I've been a preacher for over 30 years now in, in ministry, and you know, have tried out at places back in my the beginning of my career, you know, and people want you know uh, uh, committees; they always have a committee to choose the preacher, and uh, they want to hear you once. So you have to go in and do once. You have to pick your best thing. You, know? you have to pick your best sermon. You know? And I've always said everybody's got a thunderbolt. Every preacher's got a thunderbolt. He can reach into his bag and he's got one thunderbolt at least. You know? So on the tryout you usually reach in for your thunderbolt and throw that thunderbolt. And it always seemed amazing to me that sometimes congregations would judge the value of a minister based on that thunderbolt. And I have to admit that not too many times in my career have people asked, can we, can you send us ten sermons? Can you send us fifty pages of stuff that you've written? Can you fill out this questionnaire and just we want to know what your thinking is on these things? It's happened, but not often enough, unfortunately. Anyways, the same sort of idea to continue in this day and age. We're looking for somebody who would throw a thunderbolt. So Paul's original intent was to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ, pure and simple. That he said, that's, that's all I was about, bringing you the gospel. And basically the gospel is the story of Jesus, who was God, in the form of man, who lived among men for a time, teaching, healing, doing miracles. The gospel is how Jesus died as a way of paying for the moral debt caused by the sins of all men. All men sin. All men create a moral debt before God. A moral debt that they as individuals cannot account for because they do not have the currency. They don't have the spiritual currency to pay off their moral debt. And so God devises a way that that moral debt can be accounted for. And Jesus comes and He brings, if you wish, that spiritual currency to pay off the debt. And the spiritual currency is a perfect life. And so He brings that currency and eliminates the moral debt. That's that's just another way of explaining the gospel. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the good news is. And then the gospel story, if you wish, is how on the third day after His death, He was resurrected through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why? To prove that He was indeed the Son of God, that He was God, to prove that sin was paid for and that man could overcome death through faith in Him. You know, Jesus says in His teaching, I'm paying off you know, the, the, the moral debt of people. He said it in a different way. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. You know? Now that's good news while he's alive, but you know, you're wondering, how do I know that for sure? And so the resurrection comes and you go, OK. You know, if I can't believe the person who resurrected from the dead, who can I believe? Now that's the gospel message. I've often and long held the idea that unfortunately we preach the response to the gospel rather than what the gospel is. The response to the gospel is that we should believe and repent and be baptized. That's our response to the gospel. But that isn't the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is that Jesus has paid off the debt for my sin. That's the good news. How does God want me to respond to that? I repent of my sins. I'm baptized. I witness my faith in my baptism. So Paul says that his objective was not to impress anyone with his style or or his eloquence. He says his objective was to bring to them this simple message of the gospel. The beauty of that is that you don't have to be an eloquent public speaker to do that. All of us can do that. All of us can do. All of us can share that that wonderful news. So he goes on in verse 3 and he says, And I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. So he reminds them of the original circumstances of his preaching to them. I mean, remember what happened? He had just been ridiculed in Athens. He's up there on Mars Hill. He's preaching. He's talking. You know, and they, they cut him off. OK. Enough already. Who is this guy, this fool? You know? So he had been ridiculed in Athens. He was near the end Excuse me, of a long and grueling mission trip. He was, a, an un, he was in an unfriendly and pagan city with no church, only a few Christians, a tremendous job to do. That's what he means in weakness. He wasn't, he wasn't working from a power base. Unlike the Corinthian teachers who had a ready made audience, Paul was constantly disputing with the Jews at the beginning of his ministry in Corinth. There was no friendly audience to support him. And so he continues his argument in verse 4 and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit with power. So now he makes the true comparison between his preaching and their preaching based on the criteria that really counted. What really counts he says. And he mentions the attributes of their preaching the attributes of their preaching is, well, it was persuasive. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a good thing. If you're going to be a, a debater or a preacher, you know, you, hopefully you're a persuasive. He says that, that was a quality of the, the teachers. They, they were persuasive. They used logic, an argument, an argumentative style, a debate style. They were eloquent in the words that they chose. You know, they, they, were, they were persuasive. And he says, wisdom refers to human intelligence. They use strategy and knowledge and and the training they had in debate methods in order to kind of debate one another. That was the strength of of their speaking. But then he compares this with the main elements of his preaching. His preaching says is by the spirit. The presence of God as contained in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know uh, there's so many groups nowadays that are looking for the spirit in spectacular ways in ways that they can feel you know make them jumping down make them hot and sweaty you know But Paul says the spirit is present how well the message the message of the gospel is pure spirit who do you think is is, is generating that message And he goes on to say in the next verse that His message was a message from God, not some clever new philosophy or argument designed by man. And the clincher to his argument is, my preaching was with the spirit and with power. The power of God also accompanied his message. I mean, they simply had to look at the miraculous gifts that they now possessed to confirm that the power of God was at work among them. Remember, he's speaking to the Corinthians and that particular church had received a lot of gifts. Many people in that congregation had spiritual gifts, miraculous gifts. They could speak in tongues. Some could heal. Some some had knowledge, prophecy, so on and so forth. And I mean, the, the, the question begs to be answered. Where do you think you got those gifts? Was it the eloquent speakers? Was it the debaters? Did you all of a sudden have this miraculous ability after the eloquent guys, after the debater came? No. It was through his preaching. It was through his efforts. It was through the power of the spirit that these miraculous gifts, gifts were conferred upon them. So Each of their preaching styles had certain elements, but Paul demonstrates that his preaching came from God. And this fact was confirmed, how? Well, by the power of God. He doesn't state it, but the obvious conclusion is that his preaching, although not as eloquent, was much more dynamic and important and much more powerful where it counted. Much more powerful in the results. That's where it counted. Makes me think of a a man I met in Florida many years ago. And at the time, he may not be alive now, but at the time he was close to 80 years of age. And we were sharing and he was telling me his story. And his story was that when he was about 65, he he wasn't a preacher. I forget what type of work that he did. But uh, he had just become a Christian rather late in life in his 60s. And um, it was a small church and the uh, preacher left. I mean, he left to go on vacation and he said, uh, I think his name was John. He said, John, he said, I'm going to be gone. Next week you're going to preach. <gasps> I'm going to preach. Yeah, yeah, just you know, work up a lesson. You know, you'll be OK. It was a small congregation. Everybody knew each other. You know, he figured he'd get all the support that he needed and so on and so forth. And so he was telling me the story and he said, so I went home and he said, boy, what was I going to do? So the, the preacher had told him, well, just preach what you know. Don't try to do something you don't know. Just go with what you know. And so being a young Christian, the thing he knew the most was, well, the gospel, Jesus died for my sins and you know, resurrected from the dead. He knew that. and He knew a couple of scriptures that went with that. And, and then he knew how to respond. You know, you need to, so he worked up a little chart, you know, the gospel, and then this was before PowerPoint or anything like that. It was all on a on an easel, you know what I'm saying, and he had a little point a little pointer that little metal pointer that you point at things and he did his lesson he got up, and you know the preacher's gone, and please forgive me you know have mercy on me. This is my first time up. And he said, you know, he explained, Jesus died and resurrected. And then number one, number two, number three scripture, number four scripture, number five scripture, 20 minutes. He's in, he's out. Bang. Invitation song. Five people come forward. Three are baptized. And he said, I thought maybe I had a calling. <laughs> so he went to preacher school for a couple of years and In his mid-60s he started to preach and he he was still preaching. He was 80 years old and he was kind of a replacement preacher here and there. What a great story. What a wonderful testimony to what Paul is talking about here. It wasn't about the eloquence. It was was the message. And so in verse 5 he says that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Now just in case they might think that he is playing the same game that they are, he quickly reminds them why his preaching is so much more effective than theirs. The object of the preaching is faith in God and through Paul's preaching men believed in God because of what God did, not because of what Paul did. You notice Paul rarely mentioned his own life in the sense of I did this and I suffered. A few times he mentions that to kind of admonish some of the people who did not accept his credentials. But he was all about preaching what Christ had done, not what Paul had done. Paul understood that the power of God was not demonstrated by the tongues of men, but rather by the cross of Jesus Christ. His preaching was superior because it revealed the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, which among other things, had the power to do certain things. And I want the bulk of my lesson to be about the things that the cross actually does. First of all, the preaching of the cross had the power to destroy sin and death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the writer says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The writer is talking about us. Through his death and resurrection, Paul says, Jesus removed from Satan the ability to lead men into sin without hope of forgiveness, thus leading to death. He didn't remove from Satan the ability to lead men into sin. He removed from Satan the consequence of sin. You see, before the cross there was no real way to pay for sin, so whoever Satan seduced into sin was doomed to be condemned and suffer terribly. But with the cross of Jesus, God paid the debt for sin, as I mentioned before, that's the good news, so that even if men continue to sin, there is now a way to cleanse them and avoid eternal damnation. Let's say it another way. Satan doesn't lose his ability to deceive and seduce. And I think we all know that, don't we? I think, we, I think all of us are painfully aware that Satan continues to have the power to seduce us into saying and doing and thinking things we ought not to say, think and do. He still has that power, but he no longer can do eternal damage to our souls. And because of that, he is defeated, as is death. There is now, I like to call, an antidote. he, He injects us with poison. He seduces into sin and he injects us with poison. But the cross of Christ provides the antidote to that poison. And that is the forgiveness that we receive because of the cross. So Paul is saying the power of the cross has the ability to take away this lethal weapon from Satan. Secondly, the preaching of the cross has the power to create hope. I mean in Colossians 1 verse 5 Paul talks about the hope which is laid up in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel. So the gospel provides hope for individuals. Not just provides hope but the ability to have hope. Before the cross of Jesus people could only speculate about life after death. They could only speculate about it those who had some spiritual insight understood that there was some relationship with the way that a person acted here on earth and what would happen later. I mean that was the best that they could could do. And because of that, because of that knowledge, people were constantly trying to appease gods or the gods in some way. I mean what what do you think was behind the idea of uh, the god Molech and people offering their children in the fire. In other words, they would, they would burn their children alive as a sacrifice to Molech. What do you think was behind that? The ability to appease the gods. And what could you give that was more appeasing? To, what was more precious to you? Well, your own child. Some religions prepared you know, comfortable burial places. The Egyptians, you know, they'd be, well, I mean, the leaders would anyways, they'd be buried with their households and their stuff and their horses and you know, everything. So people had a concept of maybe there's something after death and what we do here in life somehow affects what happens after death. But along comes Jesus Christ and the cross. And the cross provided real hope for man's guilty conscience before God as well as a demonstration of God's willingness to resurrect man from the grave. I've said this before. Who are you going to believe? All the religious teachers that are still dead in the grave or the one religious teacher who resurrected from the dead. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to go with? I don't know about you guys, but I'm going with the guy who resurrected from the dead. So hope is a confident assurance that something that you don't see yet will indeed happen. One example I give perhaps with the younger classes is I talk about, you know, Uh, When you were a kid, uh, your dad promises to pay your allowance of five dollars on Saturday. Well, you have hope because it's your dad. And if your dad says, I'm going to give you the five bucks on Saturday, I mean, you're confident that when Saturday comes, you're going to get the five dollars. But we all know, right, that dad could lose his job or dad could die and not fulfill his promise. But nothing can stop God from fulfilling the promise of the cross. Nothing can stop Him from fulfilling that promise. That's why we have real hope. And the promise of the cross forgiveness for my sins resurrection and the strength that that promise creates in me. I have strength because I have hope. You know, the preaching of the cross produces hope because God does not fail. God cannot fail in carrying out His promise. So when I am seduced, and I am often, and when I fail, and I fail often, you know, I've told you before, I don't even live up to what I think I ought to do. Never mind what I think God wants me to do. I don't even live up to what I want to do. And Satan's lie to us is, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. I mean, look at yourself. You're not good enough. Come on, who are you trying to fool? I mean, you know, the cross has the power to give me hope despite my fail, despite my weakness. My hope is greater than my weakness. And the cross of Christ is what engenders that hope in me day after day. We wonder sometimes, you know, why do we have church in you know, a Wednesday, Sunday, Sunday? Why do we have that? To keep the hope alive. Because this is the only place where you hear about the cross. You don't hear about the cross really at work or you don't hear about it on TV. Are you kidding me? It's all death. You watch the news and I watch the news. It's who died today and how. So here is the only time when I hear about life where my hope is, is refreshed and time again. I don't know about you, but I, I need to hear it. And as a preacher, I need to say it. And then the third thing, the preaching of the cross has the power to draw all men to God. Jesus said in John 12, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now Jesus said this to His apostles to indicate the manner that He would die, which was crucifixion. Now I'm impressed by the word all because it says that everyone will or can be drawn by the cross of Jesus Christ. All men, He says. And I don't think that He meant that all people would be fascinated by the crucifixion as a manner of dying. I think He meant that what He was doing was on behalf of all people because all people needed it and all people would recognize their universal need for forgiveness and life and his way of offering it to them. You understand what I'm saying? I mean throughout history missionaries have not had problems with different cultures and languages responding to the cross so long as they can explain it in their own language. The heart is always drawn to the cross once the head understands the message. I mean you know that I'm bilingual. I mean you know, I speak English and French. Many of you speak English and Spanish or perhaps another language. When I, when I was in Quebec preaching to the French people there they understood. They got it. When I went to Haiti and preached in the villages in Haiti they got it. And yet their culture is a lot different than our culture here. And I know many, many missionaries who have gone to Japan and who've gone to all the countries in Europe, who've been to Africa and South America, who've been in jungle type really, you know, really developing countries with, with, with cultures that have so little in common with our culture. And yet if they're able to translate just the words, the images into their language, they get it. They get it. God taking away sin through the cross. They get it. It's a universal message. And it appeals to a universal need. So Paul reminds the Corinthians that the power of salvation is the gospel, not the gospel preacher. And the power of the gospel is the power of the cross. What gives the gospel message its power? The cross. And so the cross has the power first to destroy Satan and death because it provides an antidote to the poison of sin that Satan seduces us into causing our spiritual death. He doesn't kill us. He just draws us into a position. He just poisons us where the poison is going to do the job anyways. We're guilty of sin, but the cross provides the forgiveness and the healing that we need. Secondly, the cross has the power to create hope in my heart by demonstrating God's power. You know, I can have a secure expectation that all my sins are forgiven and that I will be resurrected to eternal life because of the power I see operating in Jesus, His death. And his ultimate resurrection. I mean if God can do that for Jesus you know that He can do it. You know He can do it for me and He can do it for you. And then the cross has the power to draw everyone to God. Why? Because sin is universal and it affects everyone in exactly the same way, death, regardless of the time, regardless of the culture. The cross is also universal because everyone can understand the meaning of it for their own particular lives young and old language culture aside everybody gets it everybody understands about forgiveness and reconciliation and life after death it's a universal desire those uh, excuse me these are all universal experiences that are beyond culture beyond time you know what I can go to any culture at any time throughout history and I can tell the story of the prodigal son. I mean how different is 2011 USA from first century Palestine first century Israel, Judea. How different are these two cultures? I mean there's nothing that's the same. Right. Technology, language, culture, everything is totally different. And yet you take the story of the prodigal son that Jesus simply said, didn't have to explain it, just said it to the people. You take the story verbatim and you bring it into the 21st century and you just drop it down into the 21st century. Don't need any explanation. I mean you can make points and you can highlight but just telling the story, everybody gets it. Yeah. The reconciliation of a father and a son. Universal message. Universal message. You know, one of the points that we need to take away from this lesson today is that the power is in the gospel message, not in the messenger. Why do you think on Wednesday nights in the summertime, I round up, I round up 13 different brothers, usually brothers that have no experience in teaching or preaching. You know, they're not staff or they're not you know, our regular teachers in our Bible classes. They're just some brothers. And I assign them a task, a lesson to do a devotional. And they do a devotional on Wednesday night, five minutes from the Bible, something. Why do you think I do that? Because I understand that the power is in the message. And everyone should have that opportunity to be a vessel of God to convey that Message Now some do it perhaps a little more eloquently than others, but the message is always there and equally powerful. So you sharing your faith, you sharing your story of conversion, you sharing the details of the gospel over lunch with a friend is as powerful as me preaching a prepared sermon from the pulpit. Why? Because the power to change hearts from disbelief to belief the power to draw men closer to God resides in the message, not the messenger. People always say, Well, I don't know what to say. And I always tell them, start by telling them your story. You got a story. You were lost. Then you were saved, even when you were younger. You have a history as a Christian. Have you not had failure? Talk about your failures. Never mind talking about your success. We're always talking about, you know, we're trying to up each other in our success. I got this, yeah, well, I got that. Talk about your failures. And how God dealt with your failures. That's a universal message. That's a message people want to hear. So this is why we preach and this is why we encourage you to share why we have you know, teaching websites Bible classes. We want to get the message out. And the only way to reach the lost is to find ways to repeat the message to as many people and as many times as possible. This is why we say the goal of our, you know, we have a, a, a ministry here at, uh, at Choctaw, a media mi- ministry, media missions we call it. That's the goal. You know, to preach the gospel to the world 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the return of the Lord. It's now possible to do that. Fifty years ago we couldn't do that. But now with the technology that we have, the internet and so on and so forth, we're able to actually proclaim the gospel 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, as long as there's electricity, and maybe we'll figure out another way. To the entire world, because that's our job. Because the message has the power of salvation.